to a better world. This is your host, oh, hi, Mitchell. Oh, hi, is this Raven, Mitchell? And I'm very glad that you are joining us again today. Delighted. Today I will be, uh, hello? Yes, I'm here. Yes, Okay, very here. good. I'm just Hello, Louis. Hold on hi, one Hazel. moment, please. I'm just doing the introduction, and we'll get yeah. right to you. Uh, okay. Today, we'll be having a roundtable discussion on the subject of a model for a new economy. This roundtable discussion is with two very notable, internationally renowned people in the field of economics, and uh, one gentleman who is the author of a book, uh, Dare to Care, which is uh, his entree into the world of economics. Louise Boatlink, and we'll be getting to him as well as to Hazel Henderson in just moments, just to outline the premise of today's roundtable discussion. It's very obvious that our economic system has done everything but completely crash. It has gone through a series of virtual crashes over the past actually many years, and we're operating in a system that works for the very few and hurts the very many, which is a cause of great dismay and tremendous sadness and suffering among virtually everyone. One of the pillars of the current economy and economic system is essentially nothing short of a pathological mania for more, which is costing all people and the planet more than it can begin to afford, or even on a humane level, more than we would want to afford. It's obvious that we are experiencing mounting global poverty, environmental destruction, resource depletion, and vast economic divides between the materially wealthy and the materially poor. In short, the current system, a blend of several, bows to the lower aspects of the human psyche of selfishness, yet the very same system, and that will be a large part of today's conversation and roundtable, can be used for the generous and caring expression of humanity's higher nature as well. As mentioned, to explore this subject in some depth are two brilliant, truly brilliant pioneers, courageous enough to bring another level of intelligence, intellectual and emotional, to this discussion. One is the internationally acclaimed futurist and economist, consultant and author, Hazel Henderson, and the budding author on the subject of bringing heart and mind to the business world, healer and a counselor, Dutch-born Louis Boatlink. So it's really a pleasure to have both a few words on each uh, to begin. Uh, their biographies are actually exhaustive, and uh, it would take a good part of the show to get through them. But just a, a few words about uh, each. Hazel Henderson is a world-renowned futurist, evolutionary economist, a worldwide syndicated columnist, consultant on sustainable development, and author of the Axiom and Nautilus award-winning book, Ethical Markets, Growing the Green Economy, in 2006, and eight other books. She co-edited the UN 
Policy and Financing Alternatives, and co-authored with Japanese Buddhist leader Daisaku Ikeda, Planetary Citizenship. Her editorials appear in 27 languages and in some 200 newspapers. Her articles have appeared in over 250 journals, including Harvard Business Review, The New York Times, and the Christian Science Monitor. As mentioned, the, the credentials are vast, and today's show will be looking at uh, her 2014 monograph, Mapping the Global Transition to the Solar Age. Lewis, uh, a new and dear friend, uh, Lewis Boltlink is born in the Netherlands, trained as an intuitive and psychic counselor. He is a certified bookkeeper, workshop leader, and founder of World Finance Initiative and Care First World. In the late 1980s, Lewis began addressing issues specifically around money, survival, and work, which led him to develop a vision for a love-based economy and a care-first world. I love that phrase. In 2003, he created a powerful transformational workshop with his wife, Sandra, Meeting the Mystery of Money, Addressing Our Relationship with Money, and Assisting Us to Move Forward from Fear to Trust. His book, my book, I'm sorry, his book, Dare to Get, I feel like it belongs to everyone because it's so universal actually in nature, uh, is a love-based foundation for money and finance. And uh, very interestingly, when Hazel found out about Lewis and his work, uh, she engaged him and helped him uh, put this book together in some collaborative form by advising him as he, uh, as he drafted it and put it together. So I want to welcome you both to A Better World. It's such a pleasure to have you both, Hazel and Lewis. Thank you. Absolutely. And Hazel Henderson, you're with us as well, correct? Yes, yes. Okay, very good, very good. Well, we have uh, much to look at today, and uh, I am thrilled because this subject has been one of the subjects that A Better World and myself have been addressing literally for decades. Uh, it's very obvious that the problems are serious, and with my own background in psychology and stress management, I have really looked through the lens of what happens economically and the choices people make at the captains of industry on down, which have helped to shape and influence uh, what kind of world we have because very obviously money and finance are two enormous influences in people's day-to-day life at this point in time. Hazel, as you've been an outspoken pioneer on this path, shaking down, if you will, the captains of industry and pressing them toward engaging ethical and sustainable business practices for decades, what was the first thing that really brought you into this? What was it that motivated you to to shape your professional life around this direction? Well, it was really being a mom of a small child living in New York City and seeing her breathing bad air and starting a citizens group called Citizens for Clean Air. 
And uh, I was an immigrant from Britain, uh, just a newly minted U.S. citizen. And it was the most amazing education uh, for me, uh, both to learn all of the atmospheric chemistry that you had to learn about what the pollutants were, and also all of the politics of the city of New York and my newly adopted uh, beloved country, the USA, Mm. Um, as I kind of um, learned um, that this was an incredibly systemic kind of an issue, and it all led in one direction, and that was to the fact that uh, somehow or other, we had made some terrible mistakes about money. And basically, the problem was, I began to unravel this and write articles in the Harvard Business Review about corporate social responsibility. And the more I dug deeper, the more I realized that what seemed to have happened was that money, which is really just information, I mean, money is just a unit of account, it's nothing real. It's what we use to track and keep score of our transactions with each other and our creative efforts with um, dealing with the resources of the earth to create what we need for our survival. And so the more I dug into this, the more I realized, oh, my gosh, uh, the whole society you know, is operating with the wrong source code. It's kind mm. of a malfunctioning source code, and I had to really Good dig down and figure out, you know, how we could tease it all out so that people could see it. And subsequently, many years later, we have a TV show which um, your uh, listeners can uh, access very easily. It's called The Money Fix. And it's a one-hour special, which has been on PBS stations here in the USA. And basically, it's all about the politics of money creation, how money is created, how credit is allocated, and all of the possible solutions using different ways that humans can interact with each other uh, through barter, swap, exchange, and what I called... Uh, in many of my early writings, the love economy. So, of course, when Louis called me from the Netherlands uh, and said, hey, he had found out about the love economy and could we write a book together, <laughs> I was delighted. <laughs> it was love at first talk. <laughs> oh, definitely, yes. <laughs> oh, God. I know. That happened with Louis and me, too. <laughs> so I understand. So, Louis, interestingly... Thank you for that, Hazel. I so appreciate it. It's uh, through your direct experience of, in this case, pollution on behalf of you, of course, and your, your children, that you tuned in to um, the aberrant way uh, business was being conducted, i.e., profit before planet, profit before people. And the further you drilled down into the subject, you saw, in a sense, how peculiar the choices that are being made were. And yes. um, surely I think that's a, a kind of a prototypical kind of experience many of us have had. Interestingly, yes. I had something like that driving through Bridgeport, Connecticut, on my way home with my father when I was at the ripe old age of 14, and I saw billowing smoke coming out of smokestacks. This was in the late 60s. And I said, Dad, what is this? I mean, is that legal? 
certainly, <laughs> if it, even if it is, it's horrible. And how do we stop it? He said, son, that's the way business is done. I said, but dad, <laughs> you've got to stop this. <laughs> and, uh, yes. So uh, he used to drive. We have a joke around the family that he had to drive me to the first environmental demonstrations I intended because I was too young to drive. So, Isn't that much, something? I love yeah, that story. Kind of funny. Um, so, Lewis, uh, how is it that you, you as a healer, a counselor, advisor, how is it that you came across this? And did you hear? Uh, Hazel's use of the phrase love economy, or is this something that you came up through um, your own meditations? Because certainly it's uh, it's in the air, I could say. It's in the morphogenetic field. Lewis, are you with us? Oh, uh, he was with us. And let us try this again. Lewis. Just a moment. Uh, just hello. Just one it? moment. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Are you having a technical yes? problem? I apparently was muted. I had no idea. <laughs> oh. Can you well, hear we me can now? Hear you now. Yeah. Yes, I, we I hear heard you everything. Well. Yeah. So oh, I, I'm excellent. ready to. Yeah. So no, I have not heard about the love economy before. I spoke with Hazel. We have been coming up ourselves with the term a love-based economy in the early yeah. 90s. So when you ask me how it started for me, it, it's really interesting to hear uh, how you describe it, Hazel, because um, with me it all started out of our personal experience with people in, in, in our counseling practice of my wife Sandra and I. And I simply, my attention simply went towards issues we have with money, survival, and work. And just the really simple thing that we see everywhere is people working for money in jobs that they do not love. That is it's a very profound thing. And I began yeah. to ask myself, what is going on here? So by being with people, and Hazel knows that, also in our workshop, Meeting the Mystery of Money, it's a space for people to explore their relationship money with money for two and a half days. And we realize that, that, that money for a lot of people is a very difficult thing. So from this deeply psychological place, I started seeing all the same things that Hazel saw on a, on a more macro perspective and so when we met, well, we sort of more or less agreed on everything. Yeah. But um, I, because in, in my counseling practice, everything is about love. When somebody comes to us and has an issue, it, is, it always has to do with the fact that, that the, the problem is related to a part of themselves that isn't completely connected with their own heart. People have to come back to their heart. So I referred everything to love. And so from that process of I have a problem, I need to come back to myself, I started looking from that perspective at money and the economies. And I felt that if love was produced or created through our financial dealings and the way we run our economies, we're fine. But if it was not created or if it was not coming from love, we had a problem. 
And from that mm. place, I began to talk about a love-based economy. And care first, that, you know, that is becoming now such a powerful force of consciousness in the world, is really saying, let money be guided by the force of our heart in, 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 in everything that we're doing. So I think, you know, Hazel and I saw the, the same kind of deep disturbance in the system through our early experiences. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. And, you know, I had um, decided to hit the books, you know, uh, and um, because I was being an, a, a community organizer and political activist, and I knew I needed to have the ammunition if I was going to confront corporate leaders and business people mm. and the Wall Streeters. I had to sort of learn their language. So I did uh, do a tremendous amount of crash studying of the current economic textbooks from all of the different perspectives uh, from left and right and all the rest of it. And I was lucky enough um, to be in touch with uh, Fritz Schumacher, who wrote the book Small is Beautiful. Yeah. And uh, he used to come and stay at my house, and uh, he subsequently wrote the foreword to my first book, which was called came out in 1978, and it was called Creating Alternative Futures, and the subtitle was The End of Economics. And by that mm. time, I had written enough uh, critiques myself to be perfectly um, confident to face down economists and show them how narrow their focus was, this money-based focus, which, you know, they didn't see that they were mistaking the map for the territory, you know, mm. that, the, that the money was just units of account. And somehow, you know, they had, um, we had evolved uh, a, a culture uh, that enthroned uh, the, the map rather than the territory. And, and so and what, would uh, you, what were you suggesting in your, in your piece, in the book? What were you suggesting well, um, uh, should be I, uh, the clear uh, review? What I uh, focused on after really going through uh, the critique of all the things that were wrong with economic theory, and I did that because of a very happy uh, meeting uh, with Fritjof Capra, the physicist who wrote the Tao of Physics. And it was the most amazing synchronicity because I was sitting reading the Tao of Physics. I mean, this is you couldn't make this up. And the phone rang. I picked up the phone, and um, and the voice said, "This is Fritjof Capra, and I'm calling from London. I'm sitting here with E. F. Schumacher, and I want to write a book, um, and I need to know all about what's wrong with economics." And uh, Professor Schumacher says that the only person I should uh, consult with and bring on to the book project is you. <laughs> so, so that began my lifelong friendship with Fritjof Capra. That is a beautiful story. And that shows there is this undergirding, if you will, of a, of a community of heartfelt, deeply committed people to setting the world aright through economics, through a deeper understanding of the environment, and, of course, of physics. 
And uh, yeah. I dare say that uh, the three of us and so many others are, are profoundly committed to a certain kind of really rather harmonious, sustainable planetary outcome. And uh, that's why it is such a, a joy and a pleasure and an honor to have you both on today to discuss these and uh, to have these kinds of networking moments like you just described, Hazel. It's very <laughs> beautiful. I, I love well, like we, that. Well, we all share the understanding that this is perfectly achievable, that um, yes. we are not doomed to all of this competition and scarcity um, consciousness, uh, which is generated by um, this faulty meme, this whole yeah. economics meme, and we, when when we uh, delete it from our hard drives, <laughs> and mm-hmm. also from the hard drives of our organizations, we and find our you know drives, that we, if you will, <laughs> we yeah. live in a world of abundance. You know, yeah. the abundance yeah. comes from two places. It comes from all the free photons that come in every day from our mother star, the sun. Sure. And it yeah. comes from the uh, cooperation, which is our basic nature. Um, even as Charles Darwin, we finally know that we're rethinking Charles Darwin and realize that he always thought that was the genius of humans, was to bond and cooperate and, cooperate and share. And the neuroscience never, never really I mean, the, the thing that amazed yeah. me um, was uh, connecting with another dear friend, uh, David Loy, who wrote Darwin's Lost Theory of Love. And he went back and looked at all of Darwin's written notebooks and realized that Darwin never used, never coined the phrase, the survival of the fittest, and never thought that we were about competition. Um, that, uh, That poisonous phrase was actually coined by the Economist magazine in, in London, and they apologized for it, which I wrote in my book, Ethical Markets. I actually quoted their apology, uh, that they had attributed that to Charles Darwin, whereas really it was Herbert Spencer who was writing in their magazine. Very, very interesting. Yeah. This, is, this I mean, shows Hazel, it's, how propaganda gets perpetrated and no one can really takes the time to follow back to the source. Right, Lewis. absolutely. Yeah. Lewis, you yeah, were... And what is really interesting, Hazel, is um, lately I've been talking a lot about shifting the global money DNA from money first to care first in all decision-making. And, and maybe just to clarify the money first and care first consciousness a little bit, it was in 1997, in relationship to my search for answers about our problems, that I, 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 I got this wonderful insight around care first. And it simply was, when you look at money, always look at care and ask who leads the way. Is money being used in service of the well-being of people, the planet, and our values? Or is it used at their expense? And so in that, in that care space, that is also where we collaborate. That's where we are together. Today, my wife, Sandra, and I came up with this really interesting inspiration for a new domain name, Care First World Wide Web. Great. It's really interesting, Hazel, because that care 
not just in relationship to money, but on all levels goes through everything. All levels. So from the simple picture yeah. of money first and care first, the care first is where we are. When we're just ourselves, when we share our food, when we love each other. The mm-hmm. money first, if you look at it clearly, is, is creating all the disturbance. And so what, what I have seen, Hazel, is that with... You know, we we now have, you know, when you talk about how many people want this, we've created this Care First Innovation Network that is now has 100 members in, 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 uh, in 12 countries. The youngest is 12, the oldest is 75. And the young people there, when they hear about Care First, Hazel, what you see happen to them is like their heads have seen this money picture and they don't really know what they're looking at. They probably uh-huh. have seen a lot of suffering in relationship to it. As soon as they hear care first in relationship to money, something shifts in their brain. The substance of the brain changes. And, and if, they, if they get the understanding that money can actually serve care or serve well-being, they, they can see a better future. And although we haven't created that future, they can see that, that, that they can create it. So I think where... I all the time feel that you and I are, Hazel, together with so many others, is really working right at the core, at the alchemical core of maybe you could say shifting the global money DNA. Yes, it's absolutely. That, that's why I responded so much to your work, Louis, is that, that um, you had gone to the core of things, uh, as I had done also. And what mm. is exciting today, and you and I talked about this on the phone last week, Louis, um, that you know when I described the love economy and I sort of mapped it out back you know, in the, in the 70s and said, my gosh, the unpaid mm. loving caring, sharing work that goes on in every society is, of course, not recorded in the GDP because it's not mm. conducted in money. And actually, mm. when you map it out, you I found that even in industrial societies, at least 50% of all of the productive work was in this mm. unpaid love economy. And, of course, in yeah. developing countries that, that only recently have come into the money economy, often it was 70%. Um, And I just uh, have done a review of this book I was mentioning to you called The Next Africa. And they found uh, that uh, in the African, uh, the 54 countries in Africa, which are very much sort of dismissed by the Wall Street types, that 80% of all of the productive work is unpaid and not recorded in the GDP and the numbers that the financial people look at and the World Bank looks at and corporations look at. So they're missing, you know, 80% of the loving, caring, sharing, uh, swapping, bartering activity which goes on in that continent. Well, now, Hazel, I mean, that is, that, that is in, really... What, what, if I may say, what is recognized, uh, if the labor isn't recognized in Africa, is the value of the land. And there has been a major, as I both you know, land grab in Africa yes. among the Chinese and the Goldman Sachs and the other institutions that are seeking to simply grab it up as a, essentially as a future. 
and hoping to gamble it and trade it down the road when perhaps there will be a, a, a wish for that land for productive, uh, you know, uh, Land for, yes, for yes you're, you're absolutely yeah. right, Mitchell. And um, we have actually in our Green Transition Scoreboard, uh, we yeah. have a little diagram of who is doing the land grabbing. Actually, the U.S. financial system is doing more of this land grabbing actually than even China. But they're yeah. big players, and so are the uh, Middle Eastern countries, uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, many of the other um, Emirates. Are, are very big buyers. And basically, it's because they're trying to guarantee their food supply. They, they, that yeah. As we wreck our ecosystems, um, the, 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 the need is going to be for, for food. And so Africa is the last That's unexploited landmass on the planet. Exactly. Yeah. I'd and like to is, just what take is a, really Lewis, if I may, up? I just want to take a step back because I, I see a, a very interesting dynamic between the two of you where hazel when you said that you wanted to learn the economic theories and the perspective of of world economists in order to speak that language so you could be convincing and persuasive uh with captains of industry and then enter lewis who is this amazing heart-based man who doesn't or hasn't quite learned that language, but still enters the fray, if you will, from this incredibly centered and beautiful place. It's almost like right brain, left brain coming together into a heart <laughs> coherence, if you will, the way heart math yes. might speak of it. And I understand the mutual attraction here, and it's a uh, I don't know what to say where I fit in. I just I appreciate both. I oh uh, yes, Lewis, I mean. We you know, had such beautiful. fun here. You know, Louis yeah, was here so for about fun. two weeks. And, oh, God, um, I know. I and we had, story, you know. We had tremendous fun. And um, I had, um, he borrowed my bicycle, and he used to yeah. cycle up here every night from where he was staying on the beach. And we <laughs> would go through chapters of this book. And it was, uh, I so admired his courage, yeah. and I loved the name that he chose, Dare to Care, because, yeah. you know, it, it is very courageous to challenge such a powerful system. So we were really brother and sisters on this project. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is, it is really interesting, Hazel and Mitchell, yeah. because, Hazel, when I talk about you and me, the way that I often describe it in this world, although you are... Yeah. You're a woman, but you have some really strong uh, male side to yourself. And I'm a man, and I've got a very strong feminine side. Yes, but as indeed. a man, I was so outspoken. I mean, who dares to talk seriously about an economy based on caring, sharing, loving, giving, and receiving? Uh, when you exactly. talked earlier, Hazel, about the love economy, and then you, Mitchell, talked about, uh, you both talked about, you know, the, not such good actions in Africa, one of the simple ways in which, again, I describe the shift is from to go from fear, greed, selfishness, possessiveness, and desire for power to caring, sharing, loving, giving, and receiving. Well, if 10 years ago I would say to any serious person who studied uh, uh, economics, you know, base an economy on caring, sharing, loving, giving, and receiving, they go like, well, you know, what is going on with you? But it is actually, 
It is the complete truth. And yeah. so, as as a man, I spoke out so strongly over these feminine elements, and Hazel saw that, and then said yeah. to me, Louis, we've got to get this out there. And she said, we have to make this bulletproof. So a part of her used her male forces in a way to get me out there. But I think because I speak in such a simple way, that just like you were seeking the communication with the people that you wanted to communicate with Hazel, I find myself communicating with everybody in yes. a really easy way. Everybody understands care first. Everyone. Yes, it's very, very deep, I think, in people's DNA. Definitely. Let's let yeah. everyone know that you are listening to A Better World Radio with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time or Standard Time. And we can also be heard in archive at either Blog Talk Radio or at www.abetterworld.tv. And there you can also access our free weekly A Better World newsletter which announces who we will be having on as guests on the weekly radio show, as well as the community-based television program in Manhattan, yes, the Big Apple, every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time as well. So please become part of a better world community and family. We welcome you and your input. Just go to abetterworld.tv, and if you don't yet get the newsletter, sign up. It's right there. Today, it's a better world, all one word, dot TV. A better world, that's correct. A better okay. world, one word, dot TV. Great. Exactly. And uh, we have uh, with us today in a roundtable discussion about uh, building a new economy, which is so obviously something we need and is uh, in our future as a planet, as a society, as a species. We have Hazel Henderson and Louis Boatlink from the Netherlands, currently living in Scotland, and it's a pleasure to have you both on discussing this. Louis, I would like to ask you, based on your heartfelt uh, approach to speaking the language of economics, what would it look like if you were involved in, uh, let's say, speaking with the CEO of a banking institution in the Netherlands, for instance, or anywhere for that matter, what would you advise that bank to do or to become in order to have the care-first perspective integrated into the banking system? Well, that what is a that really, like? re, re, yeah, that's a great question. I just completed a book in Dutch called Care First. And in that book, I described Triodos Bank from the Netherlands as a real example of a Care Could First model for a bank. bank. Bank for us. Triodos is, is T-R-I-O-D-O-S Bank. And Triodos Bank started as an ethical savings bank maybe 20, 30 years ago, has got now branches in Belgium, Germany, Spain, and England, and was voted the most sustainable bank on the planet in 2009. So just to show you the consciousness of the bank, the, the CEO, Peter Blom, said in their, in their year report, maybe five years ago, 
he, he, he said this really in, in an outspoken way, that to Triodos Bank, profit is of secondary importance. He said that profit shows that you function well, but it doesn't say anything about the quality of your actions. And that the number one focus for Triodos Bank is the well-being of people and the planet. Now, Triodos Bank started as a savings bank. It now has current accounts. So if I would speak with, a, with somebody in a more traditional bank, I think yeah. I would have to address two things out of myself. I mean, I would, I would talk about Triodos as an example so they could see and they could maybe look at the difference and what's happening because Triodos Bank sailed through the crisis. It only got more clients because they had stabilized themselves through putting care first all the time. But the other thing that I would need to address with any bank is the foundation of our monetary system. I mean, the good thing is, and I shared this with Hazel, there's been a referendum in the Netherlands by um, a, a Dutch charity called Ons Geld, which means our money, and they are connected to the, the, the charity Positive Money in London. And, and they are addressing the core of the debt-based, interest-bearing money system and the consequences that that has and what the consequences are of, of banks actually creating the money through the loans that they issue. So that has been raised in the Netherlands through a referendum through which the government in Holland now is asked to address that issue. So I would, I, I would, if, if I would speak with somebody, I would ask them how their bank is functioning, what is happening. But I think they would probably need to hear, I think maybe a lot of bankers need to hear, that you can actually do it in a different way. I think yeah. that what Sandra and I have seen, people are so conditioned into a blind spot around money. And one of the difficulties is that we need money to survive. And when yeah. you need money to survive, a lot of people don't want to hear about love. And I have, I have had people getting angry with me when I talked about money and love. How, do you, how dare you talk about love when I hate my work, when I have to get this money? I think to myself, yeah, I understand. But, yeah. you know, the love isn't there. So a lot of people don't know that you can't do it differently. So like I said, if I would speak with somebody in the Netherlands, I would love to talk with them about Triodos Bank because they can see a real example that is more and more successful. And just to complete what I'm saying, and this I also put in there to care, when I travel to Hazel to see her to write my book, uh, in, in the Netherlands you have a lot of trains. On the, on the train stations, a lot of train stations, you could see a big advertising board from Triodos Bank and it was a, a, a drawing of a heart inside of somebody's head. And it said, follow your heart, use your brain. Let your brain serve, follow your heart. And it was spoken by a bank. Mm. Right? So yes. Follow it, your that's heart. That's so beautiful. Your that is yep. so beautiful. So I, I, think, I think a CEO would need a little bit of introduction if they haven't had that to the possibility at all that the heart actually could do anything in, yeah. their, in, in their profession. People don't realize, don't you think, Hazel? Lewis, this uh, beautiful point, and, you know, traditional cultures, indigenous cultures, know that 
thinking really does occur in the heart. In fact, in Chinese, there isn't even a word for the mind the way we refer to it. Thinking occurs in the heart. It's called Shen, which is also the storehouse of spirit. Yeah. I'm speaking now from the point of view of a, a practicing uh, Qigong teacher and uh, Taoist and acupuncturist. But indeed, the heart is the place of thinking, and that's why traditionally Native American and indigenous worldwide say, do as your heart did you. They don't say, think this through with your mind only and come back to me. You know, they say, think with your heart. And in fact, now neuroscience bears out that we have some 40,000 neurons in our heart, in and around our heart. So it's much more than just a muscle or a pump. I actually say it's part of our entire nervous system, frankly. Isn't that amazing, Mitchell? Um, I have been to China many, many times since 1986 um, at the invitation of the State Council. I gave lots of lectures and all of that. And I never heard that, um, that thinking um, is with the heart uh, and what the Chinese phrase is. That's very interesting. Yes. It's traditional, Hazel. It's the traditional model. And um, But you'll, you'll find it in the ancient Chinese, the Taoist, and you'll also find it, as I say, in ancient cultures around the planet that oh, thinking yeah. takes place in the heart. We all know that, in fact, it's indigenous, no pun intended, in our very language and in our own Western European culture. It is there, except that we have moved up, so to speak, into our head brain, and we've it feels a little cool and breezy down there in our heart, heart area before Lewis came along. You know, no. Isn't that interesting? Well, it, 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 isn't, yeah. it isn't just me. What, what is really interesting, Mitchell, I don't know if you heard of that, Hazel. Hazel, have you heard of heart math? Oh, yes, I have. The but just method. to go back yeah. to Triodos Bank for a minute, I mean, the interesting thing, that's another connection uh, between me and Lewis. And and yeah. that is uh, because I, w- I met Peter Blom, the founder of Triodos Bank, in the Netherlands um, d- just about the time that they were launching it as a bank. And um, I became um, a depositor, you know, because I was earning, you know, some of my lecture fees in euros. And so I had a euro account for many years at Triodos. And so it, it what's very interesting now is that um, the chief uh, financial officer of the of the British financial system. Uh, who who now has retired, uh, did an, a lecture, uh, which we have up on our website, ethicalmarkets.com, uh, really saying now that it's time to take away from banks this ex- exorbitant privilege of uh, introducing our money as debt, you know, and that yeah. uh, the money supply should be um, withdrawn from private banks. Why should they create money out of thin air and then charge us and the government interest for it when the government, the treasury, is perfectly able to issue its own money and for all public democratic purposes of investments in hospitals and whatever, it doesn't have to have interest at all. There's no reason why we should be paying interest. Well, wasn't and so one of our advisors, of the, of Alan Brown, has written books place. about this. 
Of course. Yeah, Hazel, this was you... the reason for the treasury in every nation in the first place, was it not, Hazel? Yes, it was, you see. And somehow yeah. it kind of got captured by the private banks and uh, their lobbying. But Ellen yeah. Brown's book, The Web of Debt, um, and she's on our advisory board, and we publish her editorials every week. Uh, she is the world's foremost authority on how we can shift away from debt-based banking and debt-based money really? uh, to money directly uh, issued in, in every country, as it often was, you know, by the, comp- the country's own treasury or central bank or whatever. Yes. Yeah, Hazel, I mean, it is it is such an important thing, Hazel, because when you talk about a love economy and describe that as transactions that happen without money, where I started talking about a love-based economy, that also included the financial transactions being guided by love. Mm-hmm. So if you look at this picture where, you know, I you, you spoke to me about the global financial commons. Seeing yeah. money more more as a common good between us all. So money as a common good, something that we use to thrive, to exchange, to help each other. Isn't it ridiculous that people can make money out of the creation of that money? In Absolutely. Absurd. It's a complete crime. So it's like, and, and, and then what you get, I mean, there has been a program on Dutch TV, Hazel, called the Schuldvraag, the debt question. And it actually got a prize in Cannes and explained this whole thing that you talk about with Money Fix and, and with Alan Brown. And, um, you know, there they were even saying that the government doesn't actually have complete insight in what the banks are doing. Those records, there are regulations so which they can't totally see what's happening there. So somehow there's a system working where misuse is taking place over the money that is ours instead oh, of that. Sure. It, that's for sure. Yeah. I would like to uh, follow up with the question that I asked Lewis about the application of the idea of uh, dare to care and care first into the money system. And I was just using the example of uh, speaking to a banking institution. Hazel, you who have been at this for so many decades, who decided to get boned up on economic theory uh, and wrote just numerous, innumerable articles on the subject and books. Uh, how would you describe the inroads that you've made through your approach of bringing forward the understanding of uh, money simply being an, a, a unit of accounting and of the, you could say, the downfall, the future downfall of fossil fuels only and your attempt to bring forward a green economy? How would you assess your own success and what have been the obstacles that you've run across so far? Well, I first discovered what the obstacles were going to be to moving to what I call the solar age. 
an mm-hmm. age of abundance based on those free photons that come in every day and yeah. human creativity and cooperation. And that was the six years I spent as a policy wonk uh, in Washington uh, mm-hmm. in the late 1970s. And I realized, you know, I was advising the National Science Foundation and the U.S. Office of Technology Assessment and the National Academy of Engineering and all that stuff. And I was uh, interviewed in Science Magazine and, you know, all that. And basically, I could see that the fossil fuel industry had had so much money that it had paid for um, politicians' campaigns and lobbying and everything, that they had secured all of these subsidies and special tax treatment for coal, oil, gas, and nuclear power. And my eyes were opened at one of the first meetings I went to in uh, in the Congress in uh, 1975. And one of my colleagues, uh, uh, who was advising the U.S. Office of Technology Assessment with me, uh, later became the uh, the administrator of NASA, the the space agency. And he Mm -hmm. told us all that the United States could have been a totally solar-driven, renewable economy by 1975. That was the time he was saying this. If we had put the same amount of effort and public uh, resources into developing solar, wind, energy efficiency, he said we could be running completely free of all fossil fuels right now. That was 1975. And so after that six years, I I wrote the politics of the solar age, and we are now coming out of that politics. Mm -hmm. The tide has turned, and last week in the United Nations, 193 member countries agreed to change the economic model, and they agreed to move to low-carbon, renewable energy economies in their new sustainable development goals. So we are now over the tipping point, and um, the solar age is, uh, luckily for all of us, now in sight. Indeed. Now, you said you used a very important phrase. You said the turning of the tide. So just as there are free photons... Let's remember some of the other elements besides even wind, which is water itself. So tidal power is one of the great gifts we have, as well as currents altogether are another powerful source of energy, geothermal yet another. So point being, of course, for us all here in this roundtable is that the abundance is so it's literally infinite in nature. And, you know, yes. I want to roll the clock back another step, if you will, and I'd love to hear what both of you have to say about this. If we roll the clock back even to the 19s and the 20s, uh, around the time when the Rockefellers were really uh, growing standard oil and Uh, Henry Ford had actually come up with an electric car. And if the tides hadn't turned in the direction of a fossil fuel-based car, but had stayed with the Ford-built electric car, what a different world we would have had going back even then. 
Absolutely, yes. And of course, what happened um, that in the turn of the last century, in the 1900s, here in Florida, we had the day and night water heating company and, and everybody had uh, solar water heaters. And, uh, and the same thing in California, but they were put out of business when the oil companies stopped flaring gas and instead put it in pipelines and selling it so cheaply that it put the solar energy companies out of business. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, what well, I Lewis, think, Mitchell... Hearing this, yeah. Lewis, how would the integration of your good thinking regarding caring first in influence a scenario such as that? Well, um, I think that when you look at it and you ask yourself why we're not driving electric cars and you know not are not living in these in these positive perspectives also that that Hazel gave that of course has to do with the way that things are working on this planet yeah. and so one of the things that i look at a lot also in, in in the new dutch book that i wrote is what is happening with what we call the power of the few where we know that the world is controlled through a smaller group of brothers and sisters of ours who have mm -hmm. tremendous power, power based on money. And, and, and that is a, a human problem. So in my book, I also address that by talking about Scrooge in the Christmas Carol <laughs> story. Perfect. Yeah, and it's very interesting because Scrooge in the story had a father who was taken into prison because he couldn't pay um, his rent or he couldn't pay a loan back, whatever it was. And he told his son, save, hold on to your money and save. So from a fairly good intention, he began to contract, make his money and hold his money. He had a girlfriend, mm. but he got so involved in the money that he couldn't, come towards the love anymore and she left him so he became just more and more and more lonely so in that story it is Christmas time and he hates Christmas he hates the giving he hates the sharing all that kind of thing and then when he is at his house an old colleague who has died appears and begins to tell him you know sure. what road he is on if he continues with that greed and then all that can happen to him is, is, is to have his heart break open. So what is needed for that shift in power to happen? So one of the things that I also wrote about, and I think you mentioned it also to me, is giving pledge. Have you heard of that, Hazel? Yes, I have. So that's a very interesting thing. That's now 129 billionaires. Uh, it, uh, it started with yeah. Warren Buffett and and uh, yes. and, and Bill Gates, Microsoft, you know, yeah. who, who are who are making fifty to seventy to eighty to ninety percent of their fortune available for good causes. I see that as a normal reaction of the human heart. So yeah. where I go, where I go with all this, Mitchell, is just the human mystery. And when we talked earlier about the heart as such a fundament, a lot of people that I speak to, when, I, when, when we talk about care first, will say, it's a wonderful idea, Louis, but how are we ever going to get there? Because human nature is fundamentally selfish. 
Now, what do we do about the powers that be? Now, it, that's a really interesting question. Is human nature selfish, or is selfishness a disease? Well, that's no, the, right. the deepest. That was the deepest problem I found, and the deepest error in all Thank the you. economic textbooks. They said yeah. that yeah. human nature was inherently selfish and competitive, and well, I realized that that was Smith. a very kind of masculine point of view yeah. in a way, yeah. and that that yeah. we had trained our societies where women were supposed to give and the men were supposed to take, and the yeah. women were not in the picture at all. They were supposed to give free labor. And so that, in the economic textbooks, once you unravel that faulty view of human nature, because we know we all love to give, men and women, we, yeah. we rejoice in gifts and sharing. And so once you unpick that, you realize the whole edifice of economic theory falls apart. And you realize it's not a science. It's simply a bunch of opinions which are now totally outdated. Yeah, yeah it is exactly. really interesting, so Hazel. Very, because it is, very good it, point. These it are is, the, the underlying assumptions uh, you're outlining here, Hazel, in our thinking, and I did cite, as you were speaking, uh, Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, where, as far as I recall, uh, there is a suggestion that selfishness could be the rudder that would actually serve all beings. But I don't believe, I don't accept that assumption anyway, and to your point, Lewis, uh, are we, the question, are we fundamentally selfish? I would say absolutely not selfish, but we've been entrained in this patriarchal society to think that way, and yes. acquisition first, not care first, it's way too masculinized, as you well put, Hazel, and implied, and I think the neuroscience actually supports, and the whole principle in embedded in emotional intelligence implies that we are designed to give. That's really our fundamental design as human beings. And exactly, and that's really what that Darwin, uh, that's what the, Darwin yes, was saying. Peculiarities you of know, our society. Yeah. And we have a TV show now which is called How Charles Darwin and Adam Smith Were Hijacked. And Adam oh, Smith wrote an earlier book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which was all about human empathy, caring, and sharing within the family and the community. And he wrote that and published it in 1759. And, uh, and The Wealth of Nations was a companion book that talked about human nature with strangers and arm's length um, transactions. And so yeah. the two books have to be read together to understand that Adam Smith uh, um, isn't really the bad guy that I thought he was. It's just yeah. that all the business schools and, and none of the economists I know have ever read uh, Adam Smith's other book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. So interesting. Yeah, Hazel, in fact, it, it was our it was our mutual friend Ross in Copenhagen who started educating me, updating me, you could say, about Adam <laughs> Smith. There's <laughs> no small world here, Lewis. I'm really? sorry. Yeah. What were you saying? So, so yeah, no, it, it is so interesting, Hazel, because when you ask me, Mitchell, you know how how 
what do I do out of care first with all this? What yeah. what I'm beginning to see is that the, the power of care first, of course, is that simply everybody is stimulated to care in every direction. But because the care is applied to the money, that's where it has this incredible strength. And so what Sandra and I are pursuing at the moment, we created this Care First Innovation Network, as I said before, with a founding group of about 100 members. It's actually really funny. We have 99 members but on one spot is a couple, which makes it a hundred. So, you know, people say yeah. that's the hundred monkey effect. Now, what we are pursuing now is to really get care first out worldwide. So create collaborations with organizations who feel that they have been working with care first all the time, or they want to work with it, more individuals to show the world you know, what what a care-first world actually looks like, how many people are a part of this, but really with the hope that it comes into the common consciousness. And if you imagine what would happen if care-first gets accepted or understood as a practical way forward in business, in the way that we run our lives, then you can see that whole mechanism shift. Because with care-first, what is called forward in a human being? That heart. And, 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 and that people begin to see. See, people need to see practical examples. If you, I can now talk to people about their business and I can say, you know, do you think your business is going to be successful if you apply care first? Meaning, if you care for your product, if you care for your employees, if you care for your supplies, if you care for your customers, do you think... Your business is going to work, of course. Exactly. And, of course, that's really what I've been involved in with the socially responsible investing and ethical investing movement for the last 30 yeah. years. And that, that, those, uh, that movement now uh, drives uh, one out of every $6 traded on Wall Street. So that's in yeah. trillions of dollars uh, that are really directed to what we call the stakeholder model rather than the stockholder model where mm -hmm. companies manage not just uh, for money returns to the investors, but also for the employees and uh, the community and the environment. So, um, yeah, and, the and of course, B corporations. Yeah, and our, our company is a certified B corporation. That means benefit yeah. corporation, which is a special kind of corporate charter which says mm -hmm. that we use the stakeholder model. And that is now going global. And I was thrilled. I was just invited to be on the advisory board of the uh, the European uh, B corporation um, effort. And lots of big companies now that are publicly traded um, are beginning to change their charters to become B corporations. So that's, these, this change is happening at every level, everywhere you look, in education, in academia, in investing, in business. And that's why I'm really very hopeful. Yes, indeed. and it is really sort of interesting, like Hazel. When our when our back is against the wall, everyone finally wakes up to our higher potential. You know, yes. Yeah. Lewis, uh, earlier uh, you made reference 
to the fact that there are, relatively speaking, a handful of individuals and a handful of companies in the world that really uh, kind of call the punches. You know, they really direct the way things go, and including the propaganda, by the way. And, you know, Hazel, I imagine that over the course of decades you have come to know many of those top players. I mean, many of them have been members of and still are of the Council on Foreign Relations and other, the Trilateral Commission, other major kind of quieter organizations behind the scenes, the WTO. And I'm wondering, in a very practical way, these we what we're really talking about, as you said before, Lewis, very accurately, this is a human this is just a bunch of human beings. Just like there's Peter Blum at the Netherlands yeah. Bank, so too there are just individuals that continue to perpetrate the uh, Stone Age model that we have still in existence. The debt based compounded interest kind right. of uh, scenario that bankrupts 90% of the world. Who do we need to speak with specifically and have a real so-called down-to-earth conversation in order to turn this model around? Everybody wins, as you were saying, Lewis. Every This is a win-win scenario. We don't want people to lose, including the wealthiest, but we do want equity. We do want justice. We do want a system that works, that does not destroy our planet before our very eyes, which is happening, but to support through renewable energies and other such movements. Well, you know, one of the reasons that that we started the Green Transition Scoreboard and we took it and released it at first in Copenhagen at the Climate Conference in 2009 was that uh, the bureaucrats were getting together from all of these countries to talk about capping carbon emissions and it was all about the Kyoto Protocol, which was naming, blaming and shaming. And we were saying, look, what you're leaving on the table is the thing you all agree about. And that is that we all have to transform our economies from fossil fuels into uh, clean, green, renewable, low-carbon economies. And guess what? We have totaled up, and we presented it for the first time there, uh, all of the private investments, people like me, um, that are already in the solar age um, economies, whether it's water, wind, energy efficiency, geothermal, uh, solar, whatever, and our first number the, then was 1.2 trillion with a T, and the bureaucrats mm. were talking about billions, uh, not yeah. trillions, which is really you know what is needed now to shift all this money out of fossil fuels into the green economies. And our current number, if you go to our website, uh, is 6.22 trillion is now already in the pipeline. I mean, it's absolutely unstoppable. So what my model is and what we use with our company is that breakdowns drive breakthroughs. And we humans um, really um, respond to stress. And stress really has always been the uh, evolution's tool, mostly um, stresses in the environment as we humans began to take over the whole planet. And now we have stressed ourselves sufficiently uh, that the breakthroughs are coming through. 
Yeah, it is really interesting what you're asking me. You know who who to talk to. In the in the yeah. 1990s, you know, when I openly talked about a love-based economy and a care-first world, people would say to me, "Well, Louis, what what would you do about, you know, the people who are so deeply embedded in the greed with money and all that kind of thing, like Scrooge?" And and all that I said, just create a better space than the one that they're in. It's like yeah. a human thing. It's a contraction deep in the heart. So, of course, I think I would speak with anybody who who wants to talk. But basically, if you build the world forward in a positive way, like Hazel describes, if we begin to show, I mean, if if you would map a care-first world for real, Mitchell, it would be an enormous amount of people. Because the thing is that the mainstream news doesn't bring these figures out, but they're huge. They're huge. And so people are accustomed to the negative picture. So the more and more and more people hear of real examples like what I described in the Netherlands, a government through a referendum of the people who was asked to look at the structure of their monetary system. And, you know, Driodos Bank, so many of these other examples, when people begin to hear that, Deep inside, something begins to rumble and goes, well, wait a minute. Maybe something else is possible. Because in the psychology of people, a lot of people feel, don't talk to me about these dreams. You know, I need to eat. I'll get my money. But if they suddenly hear, I I say to people, if you would ask any human being, would you you love to, uh, if, if we had a world where you could make your money, by the work that you love to do, what you want that. Everybody would say yes, right? But a lot of people are disappointed that they feel they can't. And and some people give up on their dreams. So if you begin to show them that that dream is real. I have young people, when they hear me talk, they, they say, you talk about utopia. Well, utopia, what's utopia? That is something beyond where we are. But maybe sure, you're right. There's this idea of being a realist. And so what we really it's so interesting in hearing you both speak, well actually in hearing us all speak here, uh what we see is what we're facing is actually a psychological and an emotional belief system based issue. It's not about the so called real world. It's about the world that we've made up. It's about exactly. the stories we've told ourselves about Adam yes. Smith and Charles Darwin and about uh, this, the treasuries of all nations and the value of money and what is money and what right. is capitalism. It's right? all we propaganda, just, really. It's all propaganda. It's all a bunch of stories. And, you know, and it doesn't uh, have Mitchell, to do with if reality. you ask me, you know, who do I talk to, um, yeah. why is it that we all chose media, the media of writing books, right. I do radio regularly, you know, every week with various groups, and I have a television series, which everybody can watch at ethicalmarkets.tv, where we have conversations with... uh, uh, on the whole thing of how to transform finance and create ethical markets. So we are now, um, all three of us, learning to talk to everybody, going over the heads of the old corporations and the old media and 
and connecting on social media and talking to each other for the first time. Indeed. Indeed. It is really true, Hazel, because one of the things also, Mitchell, that I've been thinking when you think about the powers that be is that the enormous power that we have is people, Mm -hmm. us as people, waking up to ourselves. Yes. You know, in that Dutch program... The schuldvraag, the debt question, at the end they they say to people, okay, now, so how important is that we wake up to the realities that we're living in with this financial system? If we don't wake up to it, it stays the way it is. So I think, Hazel, Sandra and I have the same thing. I've been interviewing a lot of members in our network about Care First and how they apply it in their work. Well, I can see that when people watch those interviews, they hear the human story. And and I think together with the social media and the young people, everybody communicating these messages to everybody else, I think we're, we're going to come a long way. And then just one more thing I'd like to say. I think it is a, a deeply human problem, Mitchell, but it is also really important to see that when we create systems, that stimulate the fear and the greed. You call that mm-hmm. part of the people forward. But you yeah. can also create a system that brings the heart forward. I, I spoke with somebody in the Netherlands in a car, and he said to me, Louis, these are such wonderful ideas, but I live in a world where I deal with my fear and I deal with, with, with my contraction. I said, well, what would it be like if we had created a system in which in order to survive, you could only use your heart force. Yeah. That is how the system works. I love it. Right? That sounds like a, a science fiction movie. I love it. <laughs> but it's really a deep reality. It's kind of the alternative reality that we've had our attention drawn away from. And, you know, yeah. uh, particularly in the last decade or so in this country, we've had the politics of fear. Be afraid, be afraid. And the same in Europe with the cuts, the austerity, budgets, and all of this craziness. Um, It's all to keep our populations controlled. And they do that through fear and the idea of scarcity. There's not enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. uh, To keep us all competing with each other, where what we really have to do, you know, as... um, as that wonderful song, you know, the, the reggae, um, uh, one of my favorite reggae, you know, the father of reggae. Gosh, I'm mm-hmm. forgetting his name right now. But um, basically, um, he says, you know, um, emancipate, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. There only, you go. Uh, uh, only we can uh, free our minds. And that's what it's all Bob about. Bob Marley. Bob, Bob Marley. Marley. Yeah. The great Absolutely. Bob Marley. You're totally... That's really at essence. And I want to say, you talk about the politics of fear for 10 years. I would say, how about 1,000 or 2,000 years? Machiavelli, think of it. This is a historical trend that governments have understood false flag operations. They understood the politics of fear. And this has been perpetuated century after century. And the techniques have merged with media and technology have only become more refined. 
and uh, that's what I see going on. And I believe there is an awakening, Lewis, just as you're saying beautifully. And let's just take a look at a little bit of what we're waking up from uh, economically. We, we live in a war economy. We live in a fear-based economy. The largest uh, manufacturers and, and successful corporations are largely military corporations making weapons of mass destruction. So when you want to talk about this is where we are. We also have this notion of, and I would love to hear both of you uh, weigh in on this as one of our final uh, questions here, uh, this idea of a growing economy, that there must be a growth of X percent per year, which in my worldview, and that's partly uh, been influenced by the new economics thinking that comes from England and the United States, and David Corton, who has been on this show several times, and uh, when corporations rule the world, and, uh, and uh, one of the more recent, not the most, but one of the more recent, is um, agenda for uh, a new or local economy. Now, this is interesting because I personally think that having a global economy is one of our problems, that if we shifted down to eating locally, thinking locally, we'll have a beautiful global situation. I'd love well, to that's of course, on both yeah. Point. And that was E.F. Schumacher's message in Small is Beautiful. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. And you find that now exactly. coming from very, you know, the people very close in the financial community, like Nassim Taleb, who wrote The Black Swan. And mm -hmm. uh, what he's saying now is, look, um, if it's too big to manage and too big to jail and too big to fail, break it up. You know? <laughs> there you go. It's called yeah. antitrust laws. They've been right. neglected by our judicial department. <laughs> yes, Lewis. Yeah. Lewis, what Sorry? are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Well, I mentioned two things. I mentioned a war-based economy. That's where we're coming from to the solarized age um, and wind and water, I will say. And uh, the uh, question about the, gr the so-called growth of an economy, and I'm suggesting that's a complete myth. We can have a sustainable economy that doesn't have to grow in the standard way of thinking. It doesn't have Absolutely. to grow in the material space at all. Uh, we can grow in human awareness and consciousness, and, and there's many, yeah. many ways that we can grow intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually and yeah. build that kind of a world um, and create a very good economy around all of that. We don't need to yeah. grow by producing more and more stuff. Absolutely, and I think that, you know, for, for for me, Mitchell, it's all about you come home to yourself, you come home to your heart, you bring the money also back home. And so people need to deal with something that they can see. It's like, so it needs to be closer around ourselves. If it's too far away from my home, I don't know what's going on. So this yeah. empowerment of local economy and what we do around ourselves I talk about that, that, that money comes inside of the power of the people. Well, what does that mean? That you can actually see how the exchanges are working. You know how your own life works. And I think that this growth element, I mean, I haven't read that much about it, but a lot of people are saying that 
the, the foundation of debt-based economy with debt-based interest-bearing economy is a, is a sort of stimulation for growth, for constantly paying all that money back that isn't needed at all. So a lot of people yeah. are driven to produce way beyond what is actually needed. And what I find really interesting, I don't know how much you've heard and about it. Do way in, more than anybody needs as well. That is right. In Europe, yeah. Switzerland, Germany, Austria, there is more and more conversation about what they call basic income. And it's a very interesting thing because that is like um, that every citizen would receive a certain amount of money to cover basic initial survival costs. And then over and above that, you can start your business and do things. Well, in mm -hmm. that kind of space, there is a lot less of a drive to do all yeah. this extra producing. And it's very interesting, Hazel, because I follow that basic income thing in Europe really closely. And I'm beginning to feel more and more that, it, 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 that for certain countries, it, it could be an actually really practical step towards the future and it would calm this mad race down and well, uh, it, you know I, yes i i agree louis and I, I and there are two countries that have already uh, instituted uh, guaranteed basic minimum incomes and uh, one is brazil 10 years ago when president lula came to power and as you know I've done a lot of work in Brazil and they call it um, con it's now called contingent cash transfers that's the way the economists talk about it and mm -hmm. in Brazil it was called Bolsa Familia and uh, er everybody below a certain um, you know uh, income standard um, they, it, it was given to mothers uh, provided that they kept the children in school and sent them to have health checkups and so it's been going for 10 years in brazil and has brought about 35 million brazilians um into the uh into decent housing and being able to buy transportation yeah. and all that and a similar program in mexico called opportunidades and so and then there was this referendum in brazil uh sorry in switzerland and I remember that I started with Robert Theobald, who wrote the book Guaranteed Income. Uh, he and I started a National Citizens Committee on Guaranteed Income in the U.S. in the late 1960s. And back then, all of us futurists were saying, well, look, um, uh, automation and technology is going to take over more and more menial tasks and factory jobs and let's say that this is a good thing and let's create a leisure and spiritually attuned society where the machines can do the donkey work but then it means that you have to distribute all of the cornucopia of goods that machine um, factories can produce uh, by giving people this guaranteed um, basic income so that they can purchase 
the goods. You have to have purchasing power, and you have to keep up what economists call aggregate demand. And so all of this now has come back again, and I've been writing a lot of articles recently about facing up to inequality. And that's mm-hmm. what we have to do now, because the new kind of automation um, and uh, an artificial intelligence, uh, the estimates are that 50% of all of the jobs that we now do, even professional jobs, you know, with legal people and uh, doctors, um, are all going to be done by computers. And so we have to now move to a basic guaranteed income. So there you are. You know, it took 30 years, but now it's on the agenda in every uh, major developed country that I know of. It's back on the agenda. That is so interesting. You know, I don't know if either of you know Neil Donald Walsh, who became well-known for uh, Conversations with God. Yes. Uh, I had him on the show years ago and uh, met him a couple of times. In one of his books, in the the, uh, Conversations with God, he lays out an entire economic and political structure. And I'm just thinking about it as I'm listening to both of you speak because it contains elements of the guaranteed uh, income uh, scenario with guaranteed shelter and food and uh, something you were referencing also, Lewis, that after this, like in Switzerland, after that amount, if you so choose to develop a higher income or you want to be entrepreneurial or what have you, God bless you. Go for it. But at least the basics are covered, and you can do with your leisure time as you so choose. What is really important there, Mitchell, is we are all coming to this planet naturally dynamic, and we have great talents. So what you will hear when people talk about basic income, yeah, won't it make people lazy? Will it not make them die? You know, because it's really good to use your initiative. So when that minimal foundation is given, our nature wants to create. But there is what happens is that the pressure, like let's say you are a painter now in this world, in order to, to live, you might need to create more paintings than you naturally would create. Yes. But if you have your basic income, you would create more what is natural in you. So it, yeah. it, it is a really interesting subject, and I'd just like to say one more thing to it. Next to sure. care first and money first, for, 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 for me, Hazel and Mitchell, one of the most important experiences that I've had is what I call receiving and sharing the gift of the earth. And what I mean with that is the whole material world I have experienced as a gift to us all, And that comes with a feeling of everybody having an equal right to that gift. It's like a care for all humanity. So when I heard about unconditional basic income for the first time, I thought that's the first time I hear something that actually expresses that care for all people on an equal base. So I think we are talking about something really... I've been careful talking about basic income, but uh, like you, Hazel, I I think it could be a really, really good answer 
definitely. Oh, it has to. A, that that's the interesting thing that it's a real win-win. That not only do we need it because it expresses that care uh, that we all um, have for our family, our human family, but it's also very practical because it's the only way to make these economies go. Uh, yeah. We don't need more austerity. We have to have uh, poor people being able to purchase what they need. And so what's interesting, if you look at the current issue of The New Scientist, there is a story about several experiments which have been done on guaranteed income um, in various countries, and they find that you're exactly right, Louis. That and this is what we expected uh, when 30 years ago is that when people have these basic needs assured, um, that they are not lazy, they don't drink, there's nothing like that. They go out and volunteer. They do all kinds of creative things, including start little enterprises. So that whole thing was also a lie. It was just propaganda. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have covered a tremendous amount of ground here, the two of you, in a way that outlines both the uh, propagandist conditioning that we have all been subjected to. So some of us, like chicks breaking through the egg, have popped our heads out and looked around and said, hey, wait a minute, we can have a different kind of world. And I am pleased to say I have two of those pioneers on this roundtable with me tonight, thinking exactly out of the box, out of the egg, and uh, doing awesome things. I want to just thank you both, Hazel Henderson and Louis Boatlink, for your extraordinary work and courage. Honestly, you used the word earlier, Hazel, and it's really true, to break through this conditioning and help to wake people up to a world that is possible. And, of course, around here we like to call it a better world. And uh, it's true that if people like us, and there are truly millions, I really like to emphasize this, truly millions who feel exactly the way we feel. They may not articulate things exactly the way we do, but the essence, the heart energy, the commitment, the values are very much aligned with where we're coming from. I really think we're heading toward... uh, uh, a shakedown and a shift in consciousness that will allow uh, our views and the collective views like this to I think it will be inevitable um, because that's the way we're all going to survive and thrive. So I want to thank Please you, go. Mitchell. I enjoyed this. I'm so glad. Thank you again, both of you. And uh, we will do this again. I think it's in the future. Okay. Well, thank, thank you. you. and. Uh, so, so nice to be with you again, Louis. All the best. So glad. Absolutely. One last Thank thing, you if both. you would. Both of you, Take if care. you would, please share with our audience uh, your websites again so people can contact you directly. Well, mine is ethicalmarkets.com. That's plural, all one word, ethicalmarkets.com and ethicalmarkets.tv. Excellent, excellent. I look and forward, Hazel, to seeing your show very much. And Louis. And our, our, our new website today is oh my. Care, First, carefirstworldwideweb.com. And that is also now, we're, we're still building it, but it is open so people can join as a supporter or consider becoming a member. 
And then we have daretocare.ning.com. That speaks a lot about uh, the Care First Innovation Network. And then the website of Sandra and I, carefirstworld.com. Beautiful, beautiful. Lewis Many Bowling, thanks. Thank you again. Take care. Hazel Henderson, thank you again. And we will reconvene in uh, relatively soon. God bless you both. Thank you. Okay. Nice. Thank you. Good night now. Wow, that was so rich. Uh, such dynamic thinkers, creative thinkers, and uh, deeply caring people. And that's what our world is actually full of. We are populated with deeply caring people who really see service first, who are absolutely ready to help each other. It's just the way it is, and uh, it's delightful, and we want to really remember that, um, that we have a fundamental integrity and a sense of ethics about us, and sometimes they may escape us for a moment here and there, and that's just the shadow creeping up, as Carl Jung famous psychoanalyst and psychologist would say, and then it is up to us and our brothers and sisters to remind us of where we have erred so we can get back on track and become renewable, sustainable, planetarily sensitive, and as you all know, I speak of the principle of sacred stewardship in a lot of my work in our weekly newsletter and on the book that I am seeking to complete in short order. So I just want to thank you all for joining us all today on this roundtable, Model for a New Economy, with Hazel Henderson and Lewis Boatlink, just beautiful, beautiful, committed people to a certain kind of outcome. And I want to also remind you that the amount of creativity that is being generated, and apparently it is generated from mother necessity, it does look like we respond to stress and pressure as a species. I like to think in an ideal world that we wouldn't need that in order to do the right thing or to be as creative, and I'm not sure we need it, but certainly as a group, we respond fairly well to it, and we are doing so right now in this 11th hour as we are poised toward the sixth extinction. Make no mistake, we are poised toward it with the glacial, uh, uh, the glaciers melting at an incredibly rapid rate, utterly defying all computer models, uh, with the currents warming up, with the displacement of waters, with the droughts, with the hurricanes, with all the extreme weather in both directions, heat and cold, as I believe we'll be seeing this winter forecasts say so. All of this, we are in a stew and a brew, my friends, and creativity, imagination, and as Lewis so well, both of them put it so beautifully, a love-based economy, which allows us to deal with that fundamental part of our society, money, in a way that's fluid, that's compassionate, that's with love. Wow. What about bringing those things together? that have been far too far apart and polarized for too long. That's why I so appreciate what uh, both of our guests today had to share with us. They've been 
soldiers and pioneers on this path for a long time. And, uh, of course, as I have been as well. And I've got articles on these subjects, actually, uh, written up at the Huffington Post, which at our website, abetterworld.tv, you can read about. And certainly it's part of uh, the books that I've been working on for some time, which will be published and you will be able to access. So on that note, uh, remembering love, remembering that we are a Better World Foundation Unlimited, a 501c3, and all donations, I like to think of them instead of as investments in a better world. And uh, that's something we all share to help us build our, our global media foundation and platform. And we love that you are part of that solution. So on that note, thank you again. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin. And please uh, communicate. I love hearing from you at MJR, my email, MJR at abetterworld.net, as you'd imagine. MJR at abetterworld.net. And if you don't yet get our newsletter, go to abetterworld.net or abetterworld.tv. It's one and the same. And for my consulting work, coaching, etc., around money, around love, around intimacy, around communication, feel free to go to www.mitchellrabin.com, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N.com, and you can get in touch with me through that, too, for lectures, workshops, or private consultations for your business or for your families or loved ones. So on that note, thank you again, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. 